Section 17 of The Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter 14, which is too full of varied matter to be briefly described. Part 2. About a mile and three quarters from the station, in the suburbs of London, where the tickets were to be collected, John Merritt stopped the pulse of his iron horse, for so terrific was his speed that he was able to run the greater part of that distance by means of the momentum already acquired. By degrees the mighty engine began to slow. Trees and houses, instead of rushing madly past, began to run hastily by, and then to glide behind at a rate that was more in keeping with the dignity of their nature. From sixty miles an hour the train passed by a rapid transition to ordinary express speed, then to ordinary speed, then to twenty miles an hour. Then Thompson felt that his opportunity had come. He suddenly wrenched his wrists from their fastenings, leaped head foremost out of the window, fell on the embankment in a heap, and rolled to the bottom, where he lay extended on his back as if dead. Thus much Mrs. Derby saw in one horrified glance, and then fainted dead away, in which condition she remained, to the great anxiety and distress of Captain Lee, until the flying Dutchman, after doing seventy-eight miles in one hour and a half, glided as softly up to the platform of the station in the great metropolis as if it were a modest young train which had yet to win its spurs, instead of being a tried veteran which had done its best for many years past to annihilate space and time. But, after all, it resembled all other tried veterans in this respect. Generally speaking, engine drivers are little, far too little, thought of after a journey is over. Mankind is not prone to be wise or discriminating in giving credit to whom credit is due. We remember waiters, after having eaten a good dinner, but who, in any sense of the word, remembers the cook. So, in like manner, we think of railway porters and guards at the end of our journeys, and talk of their civility, mayhap, but who thinks or talks of the driver and fireman as they lean on the rails of their iron horse, wet and weary perchance, smoke and dust and soot begrimed for certain, and calmly watch the departure of the multitudes whom they have, by the exercise of consummate coolness, skill, and courage, brought through dangers and hair-breadth escapes that they neither knew nor dreamed of. On this particular occasion, however, the tables were turned for once. The gentleman in the train hurried to the guard to ask what had caused the slight shock which they had felt. Joe Turner had been called aside for a moment by a clerk, so they went direct to John Merritt himself, who modestly related what had happened in a half-apologetic tone, for he did not feel quite sure that he had done the best in the circumstances. His admiring audience had no doubt on the point, however. "'You're a brick, John!' exclaimed an enthusiastic commercial traveller. "'That's true,' said another. "'If we had more men like him, there would be fewer accidents.' "'Let's give him something,' whispered a third. The suggestion was eagerly acted on. A subscription was made up on the spot, and in three minutes the sum of about ten pounds was thrust into John's huge dirty hand by the enthusiastic commercial traveller. But John firmly refused to take it. "'What's to be done with it, then?' demanded the traveller. "'I can't keep it, you know, and I'm not going to sit down here and spend half an hour in returning the money. "'If you don't take it, John, I must fling it under the engine or into the furnace.' "'Well,' said the driver after a moment's consideration, while he closed his hand on the money and thrust it into his breeches pocket, "'I'll take it. It will help to replace the cart we smashed, if I can find the owner.' While this was going on near the engine, the robbers were being removed from their carriage to receive the due reward of their deeds. 
three tall and strong-boned men had been on the platform for some time awaiting the arrival for the flying dutchman swift though john merritt's iron horse was a swifter messenger had passed on the line before him the electric spark and a fast volatile free and easy yet faithful spark it is had been commissioned to do a little service that day half an hour after the train had left clatterby a detective wholly unconnected with our friend sharp had called and sent a message to london to have thompson jenkins and smith apprehended in consequence of their connection with a case of fraud which had been traced to them the three tall strong-boned men were there in virtue of this telegram but accustomed though these men were to surprising incidents they had scarcely expected to find that the three culprits had added another to their many crimes and that one of them had leaped out of the train and out of their clutches in all probability out of the world altogether two of the strong men went off immediately in search of him or his remains while the other put proper manacles on jenkins and smith and carried them off in a cab meanwhile joe turner saw that all the other passengers were got carefully out of the train he was particularly polite in his attentions however to the late passenger you have forgot ma'am he said politely to give up your dog ticket dog ticket exclaimed the lady blushing what do you mean i have no dog ticket not for the little poodle dog ma'am that you carry under your shawl the lady blushed still deeper as she admitted that she had no ticket for the dog but said that she was quite willing to pay for it this having been done her curiosity got the better of her shame at having been caught and she asked how did you know i had a dog with me guard ah ma'am replied joe with a smile we've got a remarkably sharp-sighted police force on our line besides the telegraph we find the telegraph very useful i assure you at times the gentlemen who were removed in handcuffs a few minutes ago were also stopped in their little game by the telegraph ma'am the guard turned away to attend to someone else and the late passenger blushing a still deeper scarlet to find that she was classed with criminals hurried away to reflect it is to be hoped on the fact that dishonesty has no variety in character only in degree when the guard left the late passenger he found that his assistance was required to get mrs derby and her belongings out of the railway carriage and into a cab the poor nurse was in a pitiable state of mind a railway journey had always been to her a thing of horror the reader may therefore form some conception of what it was to her to have been thus suddenly called away from quiet suburban life to undertake not only a railway journey but to be shut up with a gang of would-be murderers and encounter a sort of accident in addition by the time she had reached london she had become quite incapable of connected thought even the precious parcel which at first had been an object of the deepest solicitude was forgotten and although she had hugged it to her breast not two minutes before she suffered it to drop under the seat as she was led from the train to the cab drive to the clarendon said captain lee as he and gerwood followed the nurse into the cab we will take care of her he added to edwin until she is better able to take care of herself mrs derby gave vent to an hysterical sob of gratitude arriving at the clarendon they alighted the captain paid the fare and the cab was dismissed just at that moment mrs derby became a temporary maniac she shrieked oh my parcel and rushed towards the door the captain and waiter restrained her it's in the cab she yelled with a fever there was no resisting edward comprehending the case dashed down the steps and followed the cab but he might as well have followed the proverbial needle in the haystack hundreds of cabs carts buses and wagons were passing the clarendon he assaulted and stopped four wrong cabs endured a deal of chaff and finally returned to the hotel discomfited 
Thus suddenly was Mrs. Derby bereft of her treasure and thrown into abject despair. While in this condition, she partially unbosomed herself to Captain Lee and, contrary to strict orders, revealed all she knew about the embarrassments of Mrs. Tipps, carefully concealing, however, the nature of the contents of her lost parcel and the real object of her journey to London. One more paragraph in regard to this eventful trip of the Flying Dutchman ere we have done with the subject. Having finished his journey, John Merritt took his iron steed to the stable. Usually, his day's work terminated at Clatterby, but, owing to the horse being in need of extra rest, he had to stop in London that night. And no wonder that the lightning was sometimes fatigued, for even an ordinary express engine on the Grand National Trunk Railway was wont to run over 270 miles of ground in a day, at the rate of about 45 miles an hour, with a dead weight of 120 tons, more or less, at her tail. This she did regularly, with two shed days, or days of rest in the week, for cleansing and slight repairs. Such an engine was considered to do good service if it ran 250 days in the year. But the engine of the Flying Dutchman was more highly favored than other engines, probably on the ground of the principle taught by the proverb, It is the pace that kills. Its regular run was 1,544 miles in the day, and assuredly it stood in need of repose and refreshment quite as much as ordinary horses do. Its joints had become relaxed with severe labor, its bolts had been loosened, its rubbing services, despite the oil poured so liberally on them by Will Garvey, had become heated. Some of them, unequally expanded, strained and twisted. Its great bars and firebox had become choked with clinkers, and its tubes charged with coke. John, therefore, ran it into the huge shed or stable prepared for the reception of twenty-four iron horses, and handed it over to a set of cleaners or grooms. These immediately set to work. They cleaned out its firebox, scraped its grate bars, tightened all its bolts and rivets, greased the moving parts, and thoroughly cleansed it, outside and in. Thus washed, cooled down, and purified, it was left to repose for five or six hours, preparatory to a renewal of its giant energies on the following day. Although we have somewhat exalted our pet locomotive of the Flying Dutchman, justice requires us to state that goods engines are more gigantic and powerful, although they are not required to run so fast. These engines are the heavy dray horses of the line, express engines being the racers. The latter can carry a light load of some 70 or 90 tons on a good roadway at the rate of 50 miles an hour and upwards. Goods engines of the most powerful class, on the other hand, run at a much slower rate, but they drag with ease a load from 300 to 350 tons, with which they can ascend steep gradients. But whether light or heavy, strong or weak, all of them are subject to the same laws. Though powerfully, they are delicately framed, and, like man himself, appear to be incapable of perfect action, without obtaining at least one day of rest in the week. End of chapter 14 Recording by Todd